Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 31 of the George Fu Show, Section Finance Kids. Today with us, co-host Matt and Sohan. So let's jump into a lot of things happened in the past 24 hours. And I think on top of everyone's mind is the SVB Silvergate collapse. So Sohan, tell us what you know about like what's happening. Yeah, so with SVB, I think today like their stock itself has dropped like 62%. And, uh, and like after hours, it's dropping as we speak, <laughs> another yeah. 20%. Losses because uh, a lot of investors are now like trying to get their money out because SB over the past day has been like selling a lot of their assets for a lot below market value. And a lot of people are like assuming that's because they're in like in need of liquidity. That's the main stuff like that I've been like seeing in the headlines so far. So why why are they selling assets? Is there any particular reason for them to be selling all of a sudden? I have no idea. I'm assuming because like they're probably like uh, mainly like leverage in the tech sector and we're seeing tech is just getting hammered and hammered right now. Mm-hmm. So I think that like uh, overall... Probably they had some like maybe like venture debt and stuff like that that really like went to zero yeah. and things like that. But again, that's all it's like assumptions. I, I think lending probably why brought it down a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. like the reduced, I mean, lower consumer deposits. While well, their primary businesses are startups who, who mm-hmm. just now make up smaller deposits, and they're lending out venture debts. Um, primarily, I think they're lending out money to venture capital firms or private equity firms to cover their future LP commitments. Mm-hmm. So I think only, venture debt is only three percent of the total portfolio. But I feel like it's just going down so much they have no choice but to liquidate. So, uh, like, so you said it's like twenty-one billion or something they have liquidated, right? Or yeah, like that's how much like they ended up, like selling for like uh like their bonds like uh, over the past like day. And, okay. But again, like it was worth more than that. Like they sold for a heavy discount, which is why the market is pretty scared. I think Peter Thiel also like and like a lot of other like like you know like famous people kind of came out and said, yeah, please start taking money out of like SCB. So we might be seeing a bank run in the mix in the next couple yeah. of hours and days. And do you think this is an, like an add-on to like what occurred recently with Silvergate as well? Like, there's kind of been a bit of fud in the news about banks in general with what's still happened with Silvergate, and now we've got SVB happening as well. And kind of people were already on edge, and now this just kind of pushes it over yeah. the edge. Well, what happened at uh, Silvergate, like Matt? Yeah, well, my, my understanding is that Silvergate had like quite, quite a few clients back in the day. FTX was one of them, <laughs> which obviously went kaput, and uh, a lot of other crypto companies, and and they were all kind of clients of Silvergate, and were providing, you know, the majority of the kind of revenue that they were receiving were from those clients, and we've seen some of those clients get wiped off the face of the earth, and we've seen other folks who are just in a bear market, right? Where you know that, that's that's how the cycle goes in crypto. You have the bull markets and you have the bear markets. And so it seems to me like a lot of the you know clients just aren't bringing in the same type of revenue. I know that they also did 40% layoffs as well. Right. And so it sounds like everyone's going to be paid back. Like that, at least that's what they've said, but they're just liquidating everything and shutting everything down. And I think that's like a little bit of a hiccup for like any existing crypto companies that were using Silvergate because now they have to kind of find other providers. So, I mean, it is, you know, it's the name of the game. <laughs> you, uh, if you can't survive during the bear market, you don't, you don't deserve to be there during the bowl. Yeah, so. it sounds very interesting because last week we just talked about like uh, local banks and smaller banks competing with larger banks. So we're seeing this collapse of like traditional banks this week. I mean, it has never been thought about happening before. So, so I'm like, what do you think that's the future means for like those like community banks? Or like, or do you see more banks failing in the short term? Yeah. I think this kind of like uh, sends a bigger question about the fact that there shouldn't just be diversification on the side of like investing, but also diversification on the side of like your customers. You don't want like a lot of your customers to just be like one big customer can like mess up your entire company, but also just like having a lot of your customers in like win one industry. When like one industry starts doing bad stuff like that, like we're starting to see like, uh, yeah, like with uh, Silvergate, they were very heavily leveraged both in like crypto and like tech and that's probably taking like the biggest beating in like 2022 and then Mm -hmm. still like it's not been easy for them still so i think uh one big like lesson that's coming out is like like there has to be some sort of like um diversification like different industries stuff like that too make sure like you have like runway when everything like i think silvergate was like pretty fiscally responsible and like saying that okay all of our consumers can get all of their like deposits back which even though they're a pretty heavily regulated place we've seen a lot some companies not be able to do that not naming any (laughs) names yeah but yeah, I think that's interesting because like, man, what do you think about like Silvergate shutting down, but they are also able to give all their customers their deposits back? It doesn't mean like the traditional banking system is working. <laughs> well, <laughs> well like, that's a very loaded question, George, I think. But but I think to be honest, like there's always the cases um, where, where people go and do the right thing, right? So, you know, Silvergate saw the writing on the wall. They saw that they weren't able to kind of recoup the losses. They had too much 
overhead and they decide to shut down. And so, you know, that's a very respectable thing to do. And, you know, the, you know, another CEO might have said, hey, we're going to do whatever it takes to, you know, get things back in place and maybe start using customer funds for various things. And so it's, it's possible to have good actors in, in bad industries. And so, but, you know, I think this is a larger kind of question around, you know, banks in general, which is a question around essentially it's always possible for a bank run to occur. And mm-hmm. so whenever people lose faith in the banking system, like they seem to be right now with SVB, they're having a liquidity crisis, which then pushes investors to tell their portfolio companies, remove your capital from SVB, which creates an even worse liquidity crisis. And so how do you get out of a situation like that when you don't have the assets at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. And does that mean that we're going to have more situations that people are going to be scared of other banks. Like even for us, we had like our, our users asking us, "Oh, where are you guys banked? You know, are you guys with SVB? You know, <laughs> like no, no, no. Like we like obviously some of it's in Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Which you know, there's no bank run on Bitcoin at the end of the day. And then we obviously the banks in Canada, right? Which there doesn't seem to be a liquidity crisis with. So maybe this is a big advertisement for Bitcoin at the end of the day, right? Like if you put your money into a bank, into a bank account. A bank run can occur. You know, it's not guaranteed that you're able to get it out. So yeah, and I was just talking to someone like it's interesting. I'm a SVB customer, um, mm. so the the things that happened in the past two weeks have been very interesting. There was one day, I think it's on March first, that was I was just working doing my doing doing the typical sorry my typical day, and I got an email from SVB. They're like they're like okay because for context, we're using SVB in the U.S. to transfer funds to countries we're typically transferring through transfer wise. It's mm. very difficult. So we send probably like a couple thousand every month through through SVB, and they just charge us like fifty dollars per transfer apparently. So they wrote us, they're like, George, your bank account is negative twenty dollars, and I was like, okay, like okay, my bank account is negative twenty dollars. I'll I'll put the money back, right? So I told, I told them, okay, I'll put the money back. But then they keep sending me messages, like keep sending me emails or account managers. Actually, like a VP of customer experience actually reached out to me on LinkedIn. Wow. You're telling me, George, your account is negative twenty. Can you put it back? <laughs> and I was like, when yeah. when you first said negative twenty, I thought you meant negative twenty k. You're talking about twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. I was I was like, guys, like relax. It's twenty dollars. Like what's like I, I don't know what's why you guys are being so stingy about it. Yeah. And then I was thinking, okay, is there any like new compliance laws happening around that's making like KYC a lot harder or something? And today, it just all made sense why that was the case. And I was just very shocked to see that the bank goes down because I mean, the reason we chose SVB is because like it's pretty much free monthly fees, mm-hmm. and all the all the big companies Stripe, all the companies that they use SVBs, the VCs I know they use SVBs. They've been around since like nineteen eighties. It's mm-hmm. been a long run, and it feels like they're not gonna make it. So, mm-hmm. Matt, what do you think about well, all this? Well, th- what's wild to me, like first of all, the use case for you guys, like the use case for you guys, was just to be able to transfer funds in the first place, right? Like you have to go and open up a bank account yeah. in the United States to be able to send money to yeah. places where transfer wise isn't accepted, and so. Well, 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 what's the use case for Bitcoin, right? Like, like it's, it's wild to me that there's still so many problems that exist in the in the traditional financial world just to be able to easily, you know, send funds elsewhere. And so the only reason you guys had an SVB bank account in the first place is because there is so many holes yeah. in the existing financial system. Yeah, yeah. And now that you're using that, you know, financial system, first of all, they're charging you every time, yeah. right? You know, they're charging you 50 bucks just to do an, you know, wire a, a wire transfer, exactly, which which is insane to me. And let, let me guess, like, when you had to do the wire transfer you have to write out all the numbers it's like an archaic system yeah. they, look, they look at you like you're <laughs> sketchy or something you know exactly, yeah it's, it's a very complicated process and the reason why we set up SVB was because there are a few of our lenders um, people that we work with for our uh, fintech startup they're based in the US right? mm-hmm. okay we only try to get payments to banks in the US so that's how we were able to talk with like screw it we have to open a bank account in the US mm-hmm. um, so just in, ter- in general I don't think it's the right way to do it and there's like the whole, whole heavy KYC process you know, interactive broker went completely, you know, crazy you know, mm-hmm. over the past two weeks, closing customer accounts. So, like, I, I thought just, like, those KYC files is very, like, stingy. I don't think it's fair. But they're here for a reason, some people might say. But, Matt, like, what are your thoughts about Well, it, it feels to me like the humanity deserves better, you know? Like, yeah. there's one argument that says, oh, we need regulation for this and that because we don't want money laundering to occur. Mm-hmm. But for the majority of people on Earth, 
you know, there needs to be a way to be able to send money in an easy manner yeah. across the world. And gold used to be the way to do that. And you need boats, you need vaults for everything. And it's a ridiculous system. But well, like, why, why can't we just have an easy way to do that? Why isn't there an easy way to, way to do that? And I think that's the, that's the case for Bitcoin. And yeah. so, you know, if we see, if we think of the next like 150, 200, 300 years, if humanity starts adopting Bitcoin on a global standard, I mean, imagine the amount of kind of barriers that are dropped thanks to them just adopting a currency that is like a native currency of the internet, in essence, like sending a payment is as easy as tapping a button on your phone, you know? And so that's my hope, like hearing about people <laughs> like yourself, George, that run into these archaic systems and then have to deal with the, the SVP of customer service, you yeah. know? Yeah, I actually want to ask a follow-up question on that. Like there are actually, there are many startups that I know tackling this problem mm-hmm. in Bitcoin uh, or in altcoins. Like mm-hmm. uh, Celo, CEO is one of them. I think there are a lot more others who are doing this. My question is like, why aren't you know people in the crypto space even using them as much? And what is like the path to like, not mainstream, but like the early adopters to more than that look like? Well, I think, so Strike is actually doing a lot of things with this right now. And I, I know they've been doing a lot of work with like within the United States and with remittances in South America, as well as in Nigeria as well. They just had an expansion there. And what Strike does, it strikes a, a kind of a general purpose app for being able to buy and sell Bitcoin. But they also allow for you to send Bitcoin, but also be able to send USD across borders essentially very easily. Mm-hmm. And the way that they actually do that on the back end is they take your USD, they convert it to Bitcoin. They send it over the Lightning Network, which is just a layer two for Bitcoin. They send it over the Lightning Network, which is instant. And then on that end, then they convert it to the local currency. Mm-hmm. And so that enables cross-border payments in a very seamless manner. And so I know that Strike is doing that for sure. They've been really trying to push that vision forward. But it's Bitcoin essentially gets used as the settlement currency. Because what is Bitcoin good for? Bitcoin is good for sending payments across the world very easily and they're using it for that. And then they're just doing the conversion on the other ends. Because I think one of the concerns, obviously, with Bitcoin is the volatility, right? If I you know, buy Bitcoin today and it goes down tomorrow and it goes up the day after that, yeah. right? It's, it's just difficult to manage that. But if you can have the best of both worlds, then you know, that's a beautiful system. And that's what Strike's trying to push. Yeah. And so what are your thoughts about you know, balancing compliance and also like ease of use? It seems that traditional banking, there's so much less ease of use. Mm-hmm. But then there's on the um, Web3 side, compliance might be like a new issue for it yeah i think one we definitely have to figure out some sort of compliance on like the like yeah web3 side but more than that i also think there has to become like sort of like mainstream adoption but like just some places where you're buying stuff with directly with like these like cryptocurrencies itself because one thing that you're seeing is uh, like uh, with like mouse on like that the volatility is just a little bit too much right for a majority of people to use it for anything besides like really like investments, right? Because like, yeah, if you want the volatility, you can like buy it for like, oh, because like, you want like high ups, high uh, low downs. But if I just want to buy a coffee mug, if I want to buy a table, I don't really see myself being able to use like a cryptocurrency just because by the time I walk to the store, it might not be worth enough for that <laughs> table. You know what I mean, like, I think like there has to be some sort of way for like either the volatility kind of slow down so that like uh, that can kind of be adopted for like mainstream and even for like early adopters because compliance will catch up. Like I think no matter what, like once people start using it, compliance always comes through. Like with FTX, we're seeing all these regulators like start taking it seriously, right? Because yeah. people were using FTX and people got like shafted by FTX. Yeah. So compliance will come once there becomes some sort of like actual like mainstream. Like I know Elon was trying with like, some cryptos like a little while ago for like uh, some of his products. I forget what like um, he made the thing where I think it was Bitcoin actually that like uh, for a while Tesla would accept like Bitcoin. Oh yeah, it was cars, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and then ironically he um, so he was accepting Bitcoin at the time for Tesla, and then he decided to stop accepting it oh. because Bitcoin uses too much energy, <laughs> which which is in my opinion is a is a farce because. Well, let's look at the amount of energy that AI is consuming right now, <laughs> right? But also, you know, if you just look in general how, like, the energy usage of Bitcoin is, the majority of it is, you know, kind of additional power that wouldn't be used anyway. Like, the majority of mining for Bitcoin in the first place is, you know, green energy. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, it's, it has a lot of properties that actually really improve the energy grid. You know, for example, I know in Texas, for example, they've got a lot of Bitcoin mining going on. And, it, you know, during a sudden storm, if they need extra electricity or there's a there's a demand for electricity, the miners can turn off 
and then basically sell that power back to the grid and then the consumers can utilize that power, right? And so it's a great stabilizer for any nation that wants to kind of stabilize their grid. If you don't want to have power outages in your grid, this is the perfect solution for that. And if you're going to be out here pushing for EVs, then you're going to need something like that that's able to equalize the grid. So, But I think one thing that you mentioned there, which was um, we need more places that we're actually using like cryptocurrencies, that we're using Bitcoin. They have a term for that. It's called like circular economy, right? Like, and that's one thing that's trying to be built a lot in like El Salvador, where you know they have Bitcoin Beach, and you're able to go to various stalls, <laughs> and you're able to pay using Bitcoin, right? Using Lightning Network, and you just scan with your phone, and it goes through. But there's obviously lots of like user experience hurdles that happen with that. And I agree with you that volatility is really tough, especially like for people in El Salvador. Like, I'm sure they just go and they convert back to USD at the end of the day. And so it seems to me like there needs to be a a way to be able to hold Bitcoin in a kind of a stable manner. If you do the equivalent, actually, of a 1x short right position, that's equivalent of USD. And so if we can get financial primitives onto Bitcoin that is able to do things like that, then we could have like that circular economy without the volatility. There's actually a company, Sash that's working on this right now. So maybe maybe we'll see that soon. Yeah, talk more about how that works for yeah. our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So so what they essentially are working on is, so we, we know what Lightning Network is. Lightning Network is a layer on top of Bitcoin that allows for you to do instant settlement. But obviously you run into volatility. And so what they're doing is they're taking another kind of primitive on top of that called a, a DLC. It's called a, a discrete log contract. So all it is, it's like a smart contract on top of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is that you can code like financial instruments into it. So you could code a bet into it, you know, where mm-hmm. we're betting on something. Okay. You could code an options contract, a futures contract. And then what you can do is you can you can take that and you just do, you know, you do a short position on Bitcoin. So I'm going to do a 1x short, right? So I take my $10,000 with a Bitcoin. I'm going to do a 1x short on it. So that means at the end of the day, you know, say if I come back a month later, you know, I still have $10,000 regardless of if Bitcoin has gone up or gone down. And what's great about this is the user doesn't actually have to give up custody of it, yeah. right? They can keep it in their own wallet. So you're not worried about a run on the bank. You're not worried about SVB blowing up. You're not worried about, you know, any other like company like yeah. kind of going down. All you're worried about is that contract in your wallet and keeping it safe. And you're not exposed to that volatility. And so it's a you know, really simple mechanism for kind of solving both of those problems. I think they're on like testnet right now, so it's not like live in production, but I think they're working on getting that into production. So very cool. Is the company itself gonna be like the other end that's like taking the other side of that? Yeah, I think they've either got a market maker or they're a market maker themselves. So they're they're taking the other end. So that means they're going like say like a two X long. That's the challenge here is you always need to like match it up with a market maker. So there's question yeah. around like how much that can scale. Um, another alternative solution that's coming to Lightning Network as well, is it called Taro? Um, but it basically what it allows is for um, various tokens to come onto Lightning Network. Okay. So you could have stable coins that are, you know, that come onto Lightning Network essentially. So you use the existing kind of network that has been built and you can add like, you know, various tokens to that. So an example of that would be have USDC, the stable coin or USDT Tether, and you'd be able to trade those instead. So that might be another you know solution that's able to scale more effectively. So. Okay, I, I think like some of our audiences might be thinking about. Okay, you, I used to think traditional banks are safe. I mean, arguably two thousand eight is a whole other spectacle. <laughs> but ever since then, I mean, even the younger audiences, even like us, like we've never really experienced 08 ourselves. Mm-hmm. So the trust on the bank is still very real here. So like, what are you guys thought about Silvergate and SVB blowing up? Does that mean like there are bigger ones coming in the, in, in the next couple of months? Does that mean like the recession everyone's been anticipating about is coming soon? So like, what are your thoughts, Matt, to start with? I don't know. I guess like if you want a system not to break, you should build it such that it can't break. And so um, whatever can happen will happen. And so if you just play the roll the dice enough times, eventually <laughs> there will be a run on the banks. And so uh, that, that's kind of my you know view on it. Like, But this also might just be a small blip. This might be a small blip where... You know, we, we all know that the world reserve currency changes after a certain amount of time. And so you have the USD that exists for that. And, and eventually the USD is not going to be the world reserve currency. And what is the timeline for that? And so if you just play out that scenario for a little bit longer, I think the question is, at what point do people lose trust in, in banks? You know, does that not happen for 50 years, 100 years, 300 years, 1,000 years, right? They trust banks for the next 1,000 years. Or are there events that occur like within the actual currency itself on top of, you know, the banks kind of not putting the right properties in place 
in order to maximize profits over kind of safety that caused people to start to do more run of the banks. And so I think that would like, if there are more banks that are, you know, getting into a liquidity crisis, I think what could happen is you see bank run occur with SVB and now people are starting to think twice about their other accounts, right? So mm-hmm. at their other banks and they're going to double check and maybe they're taking some mm-hmm. funds out of those banks. And so I think it's, the system works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't work, it all comes crashing down. And you have like uh, subsequent like bank runs that occur. And what's going to save them at the end of the day? Well, like nothing right now, but but in the future, maybe maybe that's Bitcoin. So yeah, but, so, yeah. I, I was just wondering, like there was a news that says, like, okay, okay, the FTX fallout, all the crypto fallout. There was no real pain, quote unquote, real pain that's been unleashed in average day people. Mm-hmm. And there's argument that Silvergate and SVB might be the first draw in the blood. So mm-hmm. like, so um, what are your thoughts about that statement? Like, do you think there's going to be more crypto fallout's going to be hurting everyday people? Yeah, I think uh, more than crypto, I think one thing before what you were talking about as well, about like overall like banks and traditional banks, I think more than like the loss of trust to traditional banks, because traditional banks will always be kind of backed by the government. So there's always some sort of trust. I think people are like our age, people are going to lose trust like fintech companies and like newer like startups just because it seemed like a tech, nothing could go wrong for so long. And now things are starting to go wrong. Like what Matt's saying, like Murphy's Law, what could go wrong will go wrong. Right? Like, uh, like it's starting to happen for like a lot of them. Like you said, like the first blood is hitting. And like uh, crypto is the most volatile like market, and like that's why it's probably one of the first ones to hit. And I think other markets within like tech, like you know SaaS and stuff, could have some effects. But overall, I just think that right now, like people uh, our age and like you know like uh, more millennial, Gen Z people, I think they're kind of shifting a bit more towards things that are backed by like you know government or just something where there's already a built-in safety net because like people haven't gone through this experience before and. They want somebody to kind of hold them saying that everything will kind of be okay. You know, like mm-hmm. the government's going to like, if you have your money in like a big bank, the government's going to like uh, secure a deposit to a certain amount. Yeah. And most people don't have like more than that certain amount. Like in Canada, the CDIC will insure you for 100K. Yeah. And most people don't have like more than 100K in their bank account already, right? So I think like there's some sort of like, let's just fall back to what we know is kind of safe. And I think when that happens, that's when like, the disruptions will get started because then people are going to start building for like the next part, like yeah. the next wave. That's right? an interesting point. Like it, it just basically means that the decline of fintech and not the rise, but like the more stabilization of traditional banking. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're basically in the bear market of traditional finance and tech essentially is what you're saying. So there's like a pullback of all these experimental yeah. or, or newer like bank and financial infrastructure that has existed and a fallback to what existed before that people know is safe essentially. Yeah. Or like uh, what it might not be safe like the banks itself might not be the same we know like there's bad actors inside banks like that that's never something that's going to change like after a wait i'm sure there's other like big like things that haven't like hit this badly but yeah there's a safety net like even if the banks fall the government catches them at the end of the day mm-hmm. which is caught by the taxpayers like don't get me wrong like the consumers are the one that ends up paying but yeah. like overall like people don't hit as much of like a bad spot because the government kind of like protects some part of it and they just print more money which i don't think is the right answer but I think that's what like the consumer shift is going to be towards. Yeah, my question is like, okay, Silvergate, SVB, two like you know medium-sized banks, but they're mostly B two B. What happens when something happened to a B two C bank where yeah. everyday people, consumers, are speculating? Okay, if this bank is going down, what impact does that have to the whole economy? Is there like a fact that's going to drag on more and more? It's like Matt, what are your thoughts about this? Actually, I don't know to be honest. I think that's possible. Like, I think if. If you have a consumer bank that goes down, you know, how does that change the, you know, the trust model? Because I think a lot of consumers also, you know, they walk around, they think of their, you know, when you say like, oh, you know, where's your money? Or like, where do you, like, they think of a, of a bank account as a kind of solid thing, right? At the end of the day, if you ask your average person, you know, oh, or your account, but they don't think about like how the bank is structured. They don't mm-hmm. think of like how everything. And so maybe the, the end result there is that they start falling back to banks that are, you know, FDIC insured or that are backed by the government instead of, you know, going with a different bank and they start asking more questions, which I think is a good, good start, right? Like when you're, you're choosing which bank you're going to use, you should be asking those questions. How are their operations set up? A lot of those questions you, you don't even know the answer to because most of them are opaque. And so I think it's a good start because it's just going to cause people to ask more questions at the end of the day. What are your thoughts, George? I feel like B2C banks blowing up is going to have a ripple effect on the economy. And ideally, it's not something that's going to happen. But what's happening in SVB and Silvergate is going to transcribe in the larger bank industry. There's, like, like we said last episode, there are hundreds of community banks here in the U.S. Like many banks work with companies like SoFi, you know, Consumer Credit, and SVB is a lender. 
Let's not get it wrong. SVB is a lender. That's why they're going down. So are more lender banks going to go down that's going to be facing consumer side? Not, not singly on SoFi, for example, but there are other banks that rely heavily on lender fintechs that are right now going down. So questions like, I feel like there's going to be ripple effect on those banks. And when that happens, there's going to be like a broader issue that's going to happen in the economy. Too. Well, it seems to me like it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing as FTX. It's the same thing as the whole, like, right? It's just, it's, it's pretty ironic, right? Like we just had a large collapse in crypto. That was the whole idea of someone lending to someone to, that lent to someone else, that lent to Luna, or no, no, that invested in Luna, and Luna collapsed, and then everything kind of cascaded. Mm-hmm. And so you have a similar situation that's occurring in traditional finance where, you know, you have these lenders, SVB, who's lending to someone who's lending to someone else, yeah. and then they have a liquidity crunch, right? So it's, it's not as bad as like, oh, like everything comes cascading down, but you have a liquidity crunch and you have a bank run which kind of, you know, kills the game's over, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm actually curious, like for these kind of startups and companies in, in fintech that are lending out, do they typically have a lender of last resort? Like what is the situation with SoFi, for example? Uh, SoFi, I mean, SoFi is a little bit more special. I think they borrow from JP Morgan. I see. So JP Morgan gives them a rate, which mm-hmm. probably capped at, for example, 5%. Right. And then they can borrow it out to, they can lend it out, sorry, for like probably like 10% or 9%. So they make the difference of the APR. So far, I think their business model is a little bit more smarter. They only work with people with high credit scores. Mm. So it's uh, 680 and plus. So their whole value proposition is that, okay, we are serving people who are high net worth or high income, but not well served. Yeah. I mean, if you look at companies that are borrowing lending to like less credit score people, like uh, Upstar, for example, mm-hmm. their stock has fallen like a considerable amount. <laughs> so but like in, in terms of their both model, I would say there's a lender of last resort if they're both borrowing, for example, JP Morgan, but like JP Morgan's probably having the Fed on the back. So, mm-hmm. I mean, is that what's happening so long, you think? We did see like a JP Morgan kind of like fell a little bit too, right? They lost like 20 billion market cap in the past couple of weeks. Like, like those traditional banks, yeah, they're definitely like backed by the government. So like there's a little bit more safety there for sure, but they're getting hit too. Like last week we were talking about like uh, Goldman Sachs, like they, markets couldn't like uh, crack the consumer market, right? Like, like I think like overall traditional banks, like, like uh, towards the consumer side, like B2C is still is getting hit to just that's always like BTC is always gonna be the last one hit so but it's not like they've been like kind of like uh free from like all of this kind of like bombs like that have been like going off yeah and i think i heard something interesting this week kind of related to the boring economy i guess so i was listening to like a live the video with ken griffin um the ceo said uh, he was basically saying that their company was projecting how much free cash has been printed in the covid three years mm-hmm. we're being asking the same question on the show for a long time is like Okay, why are consumer sentiments so strong? Why are consumers buying so strong? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is like consumers got so much free cash from the COVID period, they're just spending it without thinking much. They have a lot of savings. But I think Sido's model is that the consumer savings from the three years will run out by December. So, yeah. I mean, I was telling someone about that too. I said, Matt, what do you think that's going to happen um, for like the broader economy? Because like right now we're seeing Goldman struggling, we're seeing Wall Street struggling, but we're not seeing Main Street struggling. Do you think that's the last straw for like it, it rip if I go into main, main street? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like that could be the case. Like it feels like in general, we're on a bear market for multiple things. We're in a bear market for crypto. We're in a bear market for kind of consumer sentiment. The one thing that hasn't fallen yet is the housing market, right? Yep. So, which everyone's expecting to fall at some point. <laughs> and so it, it feels like we're on a bear market on multiple of these things and not everything has fallen yet. You know, if you're a startup right now, you better have enough runway till, you know, spring 2025 or you might not survive. And so, I don't know, we're going to have to see it play out. What do you think, George? I feel like there's a lot of things that's going to be having a ripple effect in, in a way. So, so I'm like, what are your thoughts? I kind of agree that once this runway kind of ends where like a lot of consumers kind of like have lost their savings, like the thing that's going to happen is the velocity of money is going to slow down significantly. And that I think is going to have the biggest ripple effect from everything. Like right now, because consumers are still spending so much, what's happening is you're, you're propping up these businesses to have more cash and these businesses yep. then can like pay off salaries and it, it keeps cascading to like a strong economy, right? Like that velocity is a very important component because like if you can't make your weekly or monthly payments, then like as a business, that's when you go down, right? And yep. so like now, once like consumers can't have like that kind of spending on like a daily basis, weekly basis, as you start like, you know, like uh, crunching up more, you're living a bit more paycheck to paycheck. Once that loss starts slowing down, what's going to happen is these businesses won't be propped up as much. So ones that were already kind of on like the like closer end of like a break even, like maybe a little bit of nonprofit, mm-hmm. they're going to start going down. And that then again, like those small businesses go down. 
you're going to start seeing that cascading effect and like a declining rate. I think that right there is going to be like a big hit because we, we saw within like the tech sector, like if you only look at tech as an economy, mm-hmm. like there was a recession, like you know, the, with the layoffs, everything that happened, like the stocks, everything. But the other sectors were a little bit more propped up. Like they remained like fairly strong, like especially like oil and gas, like these like kind of sectors, like propped up the rest of it. Right? Consumers did fairly good, like maybe like a little break even. Like Amazon still talked about like, you know, like a record like revenue. So now we're going to start seeing like these places where like the consumer spending slows down, like start like uh, reporting like less and less. And I think that's going to have like a big impact on the economy. Well, it feels like to a certain extent, we're living in fantasy land for 10 yeah. years. You know, we had record highs for tech, for everything. It was a 10-year bull market. Now it's time to cut the fat. And so the, cut, the fat is being cut in multiple different, you know, areas of, of the economy and different markets. It hit crypto first, and now it's hitting everything else. And so, you know, now we're just seeing the effects of that. But that's, that's not always like, that, okay, that's a bad thing in the short term. But in the long term, you know, you're, you're cutting things that, would, that need to die, mm-hmm. right, that aren't going to survive for the long term. And after this period is over, you're going to see prosperous growth that gets created afterwards. And so it's all cycles at the end of the day. But I think one thing on maybe a lot of people's mind is, you know, when we look at kind of the global economy, there's probably a lot of questions around like what's happening with China right now and whether that's going to push things even further into a bear market. Yep. George, you know what's like what's going on right now? Well, I mean, from what I'm hearing is that a couple of days ago there was like a conference, there's like a forum that the government hosts, and I think the the Chinese president Xi Jinping had made a speech in which, like in the Chinese version of the speech, I think I think he pointed fingers at the U.S. Mm-hmm. essentially saying that the U.S. shouldn't destabilize the China-U.S. relationship, right? And and then I think the new foreign minister actually said about the same thing. He says that U.S. has launched a campaign against China. And then China actually wants, you know, a prosperous relationship with the U.S. But U.S. is like essentially pumping up Europe, pumping up, you know, other countries to, as a campaign against China. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say. So, for example, like the, um, the U.S. Energy Department just announced like two weeks ago that they think COVID originated from a lab in China. Mm-hmm. And that was, I'm guessing, part of the campaign, according to what China has been saying. And then about the Chinese balloon as well, which I talked about a couple episodes back. So it's just very bizarre to me about, you know, those whole situations. So Matt, what's your well, take on that? Well, isn't that, isn't that insane? Like, dude, everyone was called a conspiracy theorist for fucking three years. Oh, it originated in a Chinese lab. They're like, oh, you're full of it, man. You're a conspiracy theorist. That's a big true. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You had biologists coming on there like, oh, I think this originated in the lab, you know, and now now it's likely true. What, what's up with that? You know, it's, yeah. and let's not just say that like people are called, people were silenced. Like, you know, like Twitter was like, yeah. blocked, and, like Facebook was exactly not letting you post that. Like YouTube was saying that this is like false information. Like, let's not just say it was just conspiracy. Theory. Like it was a lot worse than just conspiracy theories. And yeah, like you see like that narrative shift is so much as soon as like, you know, China said, you know, like we want to step in like from China's eyes, what China said out loud, maybe this is the case, maybe it's not like they just said, yeah, we want to like help like broker peace between Ukraine and Russia. Mm-hmm. But like uh, what USA is saying, China wants like relationship with Russia, whatever like that case is. Yeah. The moment that happened, you just see how much USA is just like uh, going on an anti-China campaign, which is just insane because like two years ago, they're like, oh, no, China's great. All this stuff because the economic like relationship was so good then. Yeah. My question is like, why Why now? Why Why the campaign right now? Like why, why the Chinese balloon and all that? Like. What was the reason of bringing those up? Because, I mean, the balloon was here for a long time. Not, not this one, but, like, there are hopping balloons mm-hmm. in the past. So why now? Why the campaign now? That, that's a really good point. Do you think that indirectly, like, you just asking that question right now, the thing ringing in the back of my mind is Taiwan, Taiwan, yeah. Taiwan, right? <laughs> and, so, and so is this like a, like, before anything happens, right, before you invade a country, you, you, you certainly need to have a certain amount of, resentment or you need to build up the population's distrust for that country. And so, George, do you think this is all in preparation for something that's going to occur with Taiwan? I actually don't think so. I think it might be something different. It might more be about uh, the U.S. government is suspecting that China will provide military support to Russia. I see. And they're doing their best to prepare for potential sanctions. So they're mewing the word sanction, sanction, sanction in the news (laughs) just to potentially deter China to do that. But I guess my point was, what does the U.S. expect China to do? I, I think that's really like the huge question here because the U.S. has been shipping armed forces, providing missionaries, training, intelligence to Ukraine for the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes in, in a matter of like 40, 50 billions a month. Well, for a price, though. 
right? Like, 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 like Ukraine is going in debt for this, right? It's like they're doing the same thing. I don't know if you guys know this, but like back in like World War II, they did the same thing for the UK during World War II against the Nazis. And, you know, Britain just recently paid off that debt a couple of years ago. And so they're doing the same thing for Ukraine. Ukraine is going into debt and mm-hmm. getting all these resources from the United States for a price, essentially. Right. And so that's probably why Russia is not backing down because they know this is happening potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Do, do you think that might be why? What, what do you mean? Because by that? like the U- Ukraine, like even though let's say Ukraine win this war, they will be indebted to the United States mm-hmm. in terms of economic fallouts, right? And people are having the same similarities to Sri Lanka and China. China, like Sri Lanka, owns China a lot of debt, mm-hmm. and when they can repay it, China, I think, uh, took one of their ports, really? which is very strategic. So the same thing is, well, I mean, not saying it might, but it could could happen in Ukraine as well. So that that might be why Russia is very deterred about all this. But like, what do you like? What do you guys think about this campaign? What do you think about campaign so on? Yeah, overall, um, I, I think there's like some sort of like hypocrisy, like on the U.S. side. At least, I think U.S. is kind of living in their own version of a dream world where whatever their like view is of like the way like the geopolitical environment of the entire world should be, they assume every country should have that. But they kind of like forget that every country has their own narrative. Right? Like China wants to do what's best for China. India wants to do what's best for India. Sri Lanka wants to do what's best for Sri Lanka. Canada wants to do what's best for Canada. Like these countries don't want to do what's best for USA, right? And it makes sense like for uh, China to like go in their own independent way. But like USA's expectations of China saying, hey, no, no, no. Like at the moment, China's kind of going against what USA wants in like this war, right? Like USA like actively like uh, funding Ukraine, even though like USA is going to get a good payment out of this. USA is the one that's like propping up Ukraine right now, right? Essentially. USA is forgetting that China is allowed to like act independently, which is one thing that I don't get why they have this whole like elitist kind of mindset, which is strange. Well, they seem to pre- like, like to pretend like they're the police of the world. Yeah. Right. So we're the police of the world. And so, you know, anyone who goes against us, right, they're getting sanctions. But, you know, if, you, if you're with us, then you're fine. And, and so it, it seems to be this bizarre kind of. Well, and that's I think that's part partly too. they have the world reserve currency. They control mm-hmm. like what happens in the world. They have military bases all over the world. They have yep. spending that's you know, factors larger than any other nation. And so when you add all those things together and then being the police of the world, they like to play these games. And so... Mm-hmm. But I guess, like, a China's perspective is, like, how do they expect China to respond when you are cornering one of its biggest allies, mm-hmm. potentially defeating them in the war, significantly weakening them, right? Or even having military, like, responses in Russia. Like, what, how do they expect a neighboring country like China to behave? I just feel like they are not giving as many options. Right, like they might just choose to help out Russia uh, because they have no other options. Mm-hmm. Right, I feel like de-escalating is all a word that we hear in those days. I'm just wondering why this war is still ongoing after like you know a year and a month. So, like Matt, do you like we asked this question before, but do you see any end game to the war? Well, I think it's also a weird, a weird situation for Russia too, because it's also this is the last time they're going to be able to do a war due to population decline, and so this is a last hurrah for Putin. I don't know if they would be willing to shut down the war if this is his last hurrah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it just de-escalates. Because I, I think that's the problem with ongoing wars, too, is that they never seem to de-escalate. Like the war in Afghanistan, right? It's like the U.S. just pulled out and it was still ongoing. And so I think we're, it's just going to go on for years and years and years. And there's not going to be any resolution and Putin's going to die one day. Like, I don't know, that's honestly, like, that's, that's what I see happening. What, what do you think, George? Uh, I, I don't see an end game to this unless, I guess, the U.S. and the main allies of Ukraine just say, okay, like, just tell Ukraine, like, okay, let's go to the negotiation table. Like, this war has been long enough. Let's see, like, what you can give up. Let's see what Russia can give up. Mm-hmm. And let's see, like, how you guys can keep together, right? I'm not too familiar with geopolitics there, but there's something that Russia really wants, which is to just keep Ukraine out of NATO. So maybe that can be a compromise. Mm-hmm. Maybe Crimea can be a compromise. Just let them keep there. And then the, in return, Russia forces drop out, right, in a couple of days. Uh, but it's, it's going in theory. I'm just wondering if that's actually something that's going to happen. Well, I feel like that, like that would, like if they can find a resolution, that would be optimal. Because, and then you can, you can hold off a war for a certain number of years. Mm-hmm. Because then what that's going to mean is, like, I think at the end of it, Russia needs to feel like they were somewhat successful. And Ukraine needs to feel like they were somewhat successful. And so if you can gain that, and then you can push off war for as many years as possible, Russia is no longer going to have the man force, like the military size necessary to start another war. Yeah. And so you avoid that for the long term. 
and overall, I just think, yeah, at one point there needs to be a golden bridge made for Putin, right? Like, uh, he's not leaving unless he has, like, what he said. Like, there has to be something that Russia gets out of this. Like, like hundreds of thousands of his men have died, like, in this war. Like, uh, he went all in. And I think overall, like, the bigger point that you mentioned, George, was, yeah, like, the whole point of, like, this war in Russia, it's a, like, by, like, no parties are okay with the fact of Ukraine entering NATO. And I think that makes sense. On Like, if you look at it from Russia's point of view, it makes sense that they don't want USA in their backyard. Like, Ukraine being part of NATO means that, like, USA can have all their forces right on Russia's, like, uh, doorsteps. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense for, like, all of Russia, like, that they were never okay with that. And that's kind of, like, where this whole thing started from, right? When, like, you know, Biden said that, like, uh, Ukraine might enter NATO. And so there has to be, like, the one non-negotiable for all of Russia has always been Ukraine can't be part of NATO. So that has to be the first part of, like, that negotiation table is that's the first thing. Okay, that's not part of it. Then they have to actually negotiate something where Putin can, like, actually feel like he won and he can walk back. Like, that golden bridge has to be built. And until that happens, this is not going to de-escalate because Putin has the arm of last resort with nuclear weapons. Like, at the end of the day, for him, it doesn't matter as much because, like uh, Matt said, like, Russia's population is declining. This is his, like, last hurrah. He mm-hmm. can go all in. He can put all his chips in. It doesn't matter as much for him. Mm-hmm. USA is, like, um, they're, like, trying to feed off of, like, uh, China in, like, an economic war right now, too. Like, there's a lot more happening for USA, like, that they should not be trying to, like, keep this war going. And there should be, like, a negotiation started, like, ASAP. Well, you know what's wild to me is, like, the economic damage from China going and supporting Russia mm-hmm. is going to be so dramatic compared to the economic damage like anywhere near Russia itself because R- Russia has the same GDP as Florida, for God's sake, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's this t- tiny country in terms of actual GDP mm-hmm. that's essentially influencing a significant amount of world economics. And also, isn't Russia still supplying you know oil to Europe like yeah. right now <laughs> as the war is going on, and, and Germany has been entirely reliant on that. And so I, I don't know. You just have a very bizarre kind of dynamic between these different countries that are even inside of NATO themselves. Yeah, and I think an interesting point I want to bring up is like the the U.S. response, the U.S. foreign policy. Uh, I think recent days and months, it just feels like they're relying on this intimidation tactic. Mm. They're intimidating India for working with Russia. Mm-hmm. So essentially when like the ruble was completely declining, China and India and like, uh, I think those are like, the main countries, they, they started buying like the oil like right. from Russia in the ruble itself, right? Okay. And like that helped a lot. And like obviously USA is mad because like that's a world reserve currency is the US dollar, yada, yada. And like, so they were like propping up the ruble itself with okay. that. Okay, interesting. So, so yeah, they were, their response was intimidation to like the Indian government, to China, to Saudi Arabia. Actually, didn't work, didn't work, didn't work. And now they're doing it again with China. They're intimidating it to say, okay, don't you dare providing your weaponry to Russia. Otherwise, we'll, uh, we'll have our allies sanctioning you the moment you do it. So That just doesn't make sense strategically. Like, uh, if you're any other country, like, at one point, the fear is not going to work, right? Like, you're thinking for your own country's, like, future. At one point, like, USA's got to, like, start making trades that are like beneficial for the other country like you know like give like benefits saying hey yeah India, yeah don't trade like uh with uh russia and the ruble like we'll give you like a discount or like keep my reason why like some of these countries were doing it even right now china gets like the oil from russia at a significant discount like if anything this war has actually helped china economically right like just to like put that out there and then the main way for like usa to be able to get back at russia is by telling china hey we can match that price we can do something there like, that's the way you should be going about this, not just, like, being accusatory publicly mm-hmm. to try to, like, shame another country into, like, backing down because they don't align with your exact views, which, yeah. to me, still doesn't make any sense. Matt, what's your Well, it's, it's fascinating here because essentially the USA is preventing, like, trying to prevent free markets by being yeah. the bully in the room with a sword, you know? And so, <laughs> right? And, and so, and so at, at the end of the day, if you believe in, you know, free markets, you can only do that for so long. Mm-hmm. Right, you can only afford to be the bully in the room for so long until a coalition forms yeah. against you. And so, I think they've got to smarten up and and be think economically about this at the end of the day. Yeah, and I feel like like someone said a couple episodes back, there are like countries are lining up yeah. to be against U.S. potentially. So it will be very interesting to see how they shape shape out. We can see next week's episode. See, uh, what, if there are any updates on this, uh, I think so. On this one interesting business news, actually. Today on the Wall Street Journal about uh, Elon Musk <laughs> potentially buying a new town. Uh, so what is that about? 
Yeah, I think it was just Elon Musk just said, hey, uh, like uh, he's considering moving to like I think it's like uh, 10, 15 miles like outside of like Austin, okay. like to make like his own little city, his own technical laws by the way, like, <laughs> his own like municipality. Okay. So like for like his company, like the Boring Company, I think Tesla's and SpaceX, all of them basically for like his employees to be able to, like work and live and stuff like that. And it's his version of I guess like a utopia, dystopia, however you want to look at it. That's on you. But it's kind of fascinating to see just you know like a tech entrepreneur is making his own city, which is just crazy just to like put in a, a sentence. Yeah, the utopia text. I'm curious, like, what is everyone going to be driving you uh, EVs? And, oh my God. But, but my, my question is, like, usually when you try to plan out a city, like, if we just look at all the North American cities that were planned out, yeah. you know, the, the tr- like the transportation is shit, the planning of it is shit, and when a city actually grows organically, it ends up being, you know, a lot more favorable for transportation and for, yeah. you know, quality of life. And so I'm curious, like, how is he actually thinking of, you know, implementing this so to overcome those problems? I think the one thing Elon's good at always is like the infrastructure building. Like, like I think like stuff like that would be done well. It just the actual laws there, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be crazy. But like, isn't this already happening in the Silicon Valley? Like, for example, like Mountain View is taken over by Google, Menlo Park is taken over by Meta. Yeah. Those things are already happening in a way, right? I mean, you can you can think of it as like, okay, they have a gigantic park. Whereas if you're not from Google or Meta, you cannot go into the park. So it's kind of already like the city for those tech companies itself. Right. I mean, well, I'm just trying to see if Elon Musk is trying to do that the same thing, except it's for his companies in Austin. So, Matt, what's, what were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, it seems like mega projects in general. I'll be interested to know, like, what, what is the plan and how is he thinking of implementing these things and how far is he planning to go and how much will be organic? Because I think there's, in general, there's a lot of, like, mega projects around the world that, you know, people have grand visions for. <laughs> like the Saudi Arabia one. Huh? Like Saudi Arabia. Yeah, like the, the line, line. The, yeah. the line. I, I watched a video from an, um, an architect on it, and they were just like, oh, this is going to be a complete shit show. You know, that you're going to have. And so, for those that don't know, the line is that they're planning to literally create a city in Saudi Arabia that's a straight line, and then have, I guess, you have houses around it. But if you think of like that building in the middle of the desert where there's nothing around that's nearby, and then also you're going to deal with heating problems, yeah. and if there's any problems with the grid, everything's going to sh- like shut down. And so I'm just curious to know, like, what is his plan, and what are the what's the architecture going to look like, and how is he going to implement this in a way that's not going to you know end up in a complete disaster? So right, exactly. I mean, I mean, the city planning is very different from creating a business. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like infrastructure is a very different game than a business game. So I feel like it, it, he, it's ambitious to do it, but like the boring company, the, the tunnel didn't work out. Right, like the tunnel was underground tunnel under I, LA. I don't think it worked out. They abandoned the projects, according to like a recent report. Oh, really, I did not know that. Yeah, I, I thought he was like using that tunnel actually. Maybe I'm wrong. The tunnel was like there was a there's a tunnel in Las Vegas. You can drive your cars in. Okay, and that's it. Oh really? And that tunnel is <laughs> about like 200 meters. You can go in and you can get out. That's it. I thought you would have built a tunnel between like his home and, and the office, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like there's just like many grand visions, mm-hmm. but like actually realizing it will be really tough, yeah. right? And speaking of like, Elon Musk, there's so much, so much drama happening recently as well. So, yeah. no, I think in general, like uh, one of the bigger things, like maybe like the joke part of it is like, like people have just been talking about getting out of California, getting out of San Francisco, getting out of Silicon Valley, right? And like Elon's been like vocal about going to Texas for a while, you know, no state taxes, like, yeah. still pretty good weather, stuff like that, like, it makes sense, like, just for, like, tech to start, like, shifting more towards, like, you know, Texas. And Dubai starting to, like, put a lot of investments in to try to get a lot of tech to go there, too. So, I think this is kind of, like, the start to see, like, uh, some big companies considering, like, leaving. Like, Tesla is a huge, huge, huge company, right? So, like, to see that, like, leaving the valley would be kind of, like, big news as well, I think. What do you think about the relocations of, like, tech companies, man? I mean, companies well, are cutting costs now, too. Well, I've heard right. so much about folks leaving California and, and going to, like, Florida, one, and Texas, two. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I think, was spurred during the COVID, obviously, when there was just, like, so many ridiculous measures put in place in yeah. California. Yeah. And what's in our, a side note, too, is in Texas, like, Bitcoin has become, like, huge, right? Like, a, a really great, like, Bitcoin center. And so I hope that that continues. But I think, in general, like, you're seeing this push towards people like kind of realize that things that were wrong in their life and that they weren't happy about. I've heard of so many people that were just not happy with the thing, the way things were going with COVID mm-hmm. and they just wanted some more freedom essentially. Yeah. And so being able to go and, and then, you know, transfer to Texas or Florida 
it also it's almost kind of the feeling of the the wild west essentially like going out yeah. except they're actually going east which is ironic right but they're going east and looking for that you know wild west adventure or that wild west freedom and so it's nice to see that kind of energy be spurred and I come back. I think they just want a good quality of life for themselves. Like at the end of the day, like if, when you're going to SF, uh, you don't feel inspired. You don't feel like you have a future there. Mm-hmm. That's why people are moving out. I think aside from SF, like, like are you guys seeing other kind of migrations happening? Like in terms of like from New York to somewhere else or from Toronto to somewhere else? Or do you guys see that, you know, like now it doesn't really matter anymore? Because we talk about remote work mm-hmm. and people, companies now are asking people to come back two, three times a week. So the, the remote work aspect is gone and people are saying, okay, Florida and Texas might not be as important as it was before because people are mm-hmm. still going to go back to the office in New York or SF. Matt, what do you think about that? Well, I think you've seen a lot of folks that saw what kind of happened with COVID and they moved away and now their companies asking them to come back and they're like, the hell with that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think we're seeing that shift occur, but in general, we're seeing a shift occur I feel like it, honestly, I feel like it's a tough thing for like a business, right? Because mm-hmm. if I was to describe a startup to you and all three people are remote, mm-hmm. you'd be like, hmm, and you're asked you, okay, is that startup going to be successful? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> then I told you that three of them, like we're in a hacker house. They're in the garage every day yeah. like, working their asses off. Yeah. And I asked you, do you think they're going to be successful? You'd probably be more likely to think they'd be successful. And so I think we're seeing like all of these things play out where Elon Musk is requiring people to come back, but firing people at the same time. And maybe people that are a certain like stage in their life are fine being remote. And you have companies like Shopify and and Google that are more fine with people remote. And so it seems like we've just had a major event occur and we're trying to find an equilibrium. Yeah. And yeah. what do you think, Sam? So, you know, I just think overall, like the work from home or like, yeah, like startups where like people are remote, you don't really have any kind of brand loyalty at that point at all, right? Like let's say you're working on Twitter, like you don't really care about the little bird. You don't care that, oh, like that's the thing <laughs> you're working for, right? You care about the paycheck that you're getting and if the work is cool. Like, you know, like there's no relationship built with like your coworkers, stuff like that. Yeah. People exactly. are prone to leave a lot faster, stuff like that. So I, I get from the company's point of view, like, you know, like a little more pressure to come in. On the startup side, it makes sense. If everyone's like in that same house, like if people are talking, there's passion that gets involved, right? Like you guys go for lunch together, even stuff. You guys like take those breaks together. That's what ends up changing. Then like when you guys come back, like, you yeah. know, like bring that camaraderie, then you actually care about like that growth, scalability, yeah. all the fancy words you want to use. I remember, I remember when I first started my company, it was like in, a, in like a student housing near mm-hmm. University of Waterloo. It was me and my co-founder were grinding through day and nights. Uh, we're just living there. It was a small house, one bed, one den. And in the feeling of that, you can meet each other every day and just do the work yeah. together. It was like super valuable. I think it's something that you cannot do in remote. And during COVID, I was really bought into the remote work. Um, and I, I wanted my employees to be, obviously, to be happy, to be working, to be having work-life balance. But after 22, I think everything just changed for like kind of every business. And for us, it's kind of tough to just keep remote working like all the time. Because we're definitely seeing productivity slips. It's hard to measure issues. Miscommunication, undercommunication happen all the time. So yeah, Matt, what, what happened when you guys first started? Was like uh, in a dorm room or something? Me and my co-founder, like we, we, we were roommates at Waterloo. And so, you know, when we first started, you know, just working on projects in general, it was, it was in person. It was, you know, every day after work, basically, we'd be working on stuff. And like when we went into COVID, like I think we had a, a similar, you know, situation where we had everyone, hey, we're going remote everyone actually lived pretty close. So if we really needed to have a meeting, we could come in to the office. But now I think one thing that we did notice was like, you know, for the programmers on the team, like working from home sometimes can be, you know, really optimal because there's a lot of time to be able to do that deep work and be able to focus. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, for like the non-devs, like it can actually, you can actually get less done because you need to be having that constant communication. And I think, Having a meeting like remotely is also a lot tougher than having it just in person and being able to come up with things like on the fly. And so we've tried to move towards more of like a hybrid approach where we have, you know, we come in for the really important meetings or when we need to or when we see each other where we're just feeling that disconnect. But if we really need that time to be able to go home and, and focus and, and get some work done, you know, that, like that's an option too. And so that's, I think, what's worked well for us. But I think it really depends on the company. Yeah. So what was your experience when you first started out your career? Yeah. Like for me, um, I bought into the work from home like completely. I might have worked from home a bit too much. Like I went in like maybe once a month doing like big social events. And I can definitely say like, yeah, like there wasn't really as much like a camaraderie with like me and my teammates, stuff like that. 
Like the work part, I don't think that got affected as much. I think I did my work just as well, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like the other parts of work that are fun, you know what I mean? Like the, those people become your friends, stuff like that. Like, you know, like this might seem kind of dumb, but like I saw a recent study, like uh, the amount of people that find their sick father from like their workplace has dropped from like 21% to like 14 or 15%, something like that. But like, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but like you're seeing like a lot less relationship with the people you work from. And maybe some people are okay with that, but... Overall, then, like, the company itself starts facing so much more turnover, things like that. I feel like that culture doesn't, like, make sense as much. So, I, like, it makes sense for companies to really want people to come in, I think. Yeah, I don't like the cubicles, for sure. Yeah. I think companies shouldn't have those cubicles for people. Well, I feel like they shouldn't have cubicles, but they also should have, like, places where they can be focused. Right. Right? You know, and, and so, like, so how, how do you have, like, like, the open concept office... Is like terrible for yeah. concentration for work for developers, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, but like for other people, maybe maybe it's better. Yeah, I like cubicles too. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, if, if you're not doing work, you also do like uh, you know, like these times when like it's like a little more downtime, you kind of want like a little more privacy too, right? Like, uh, so cubicle definitely no. I feel I mean I mean the workspace that the office we're in right now, I mean it's not really cubicles. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of going away, but I kind of feel like for larger companies, it's probably hard to navigate remote i mean our team is right now 14 it's just so hard to manage everyone mm-hmm. you have to bought a manager in. so it's, it's, it's been bonkers like my how's your team going these days i mean yeah we're, we're a smaller size team so it's been a little, a little easier and we we live close and so that's it's easier to coordinate i think and come into the office when we need to right. and so yeah but i think like with scale like that happens when you i've heard like when you get to 14 15 people it gets tougher to manage and then scaling from there you know, it just becomes harder yeah. and harder over time. For us, like, there's a lot of readjustment happening recently, too. Just, like, the macroeconomics, all the events is happening. Like, we're always just, like, reassessing, like, okay, how can we be more productive? Mm-hmm. And there is, like, an argument about having a smaller team that's better managed can actually be more productive mm-hmm. than well, having a large team. Well, there's plenty of, like, startups, too, that make, like, per employee, are making, like, millions and millions of dollars, and they have, like, a 15-person team, you right, know? Exactly. Even the unicorns, that they, like, I think, like... WhatsApp was a great example of like a really, really small team that was able to, you know, just grow like to so many users with such a small team. And so I don't know if we're seeing a shift towards that. Maybe that's what people should aim for more instead of all the bloat, you know, yeah. that, that exists. I think bloat is really easy to get yeah, within a company. And I'm pretty sure the 15 people work at WhatsApp, they work in person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not remote. I think Notion was not a good example about mm-hmm. working in person. Even during COVID, they were, they were hiring a very small number of people but they're all working in the same office. Mm-hmm. For me, if I have a choice, an option, I'll, I'll give everyone like at least two days in the office. Yeah, I, I see the wisdom in that. I will say a couple months back, I, I wouldn't think the same way as I am now. But you know, right now, the capital structure is a lot more difficult for everyone in the ecosystem or not. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a lot more important to focus on like ROI per employee, mm-hmm. even if you're looking at those metrics. Well, and I think also like we're like we're like for a lot of companies, we're seeing a shift here where the, the fat is being cut. And so the necessity of ensuring that workers are being effective and productive is that much you know, more important, which obviously we, the, the layoffs from Twitter were controversial, but you can't say that like your average employee productivity didn't go up, right? right? And, so, and so what are we, like, I think one of the big questions is what are we going to see in the next little while of like the bloat that ends up getting cut and, and how are we going to see you know, companies try to streamline as we go into this you know, next phase in this bear market. So, especially with AI entering the picture, I think that's going to change a lot of that. Right. Yeah, I, I was just seeing news this week. I uh, don't want to go too much into it, but like uh, Google is bringing, is telling its employees they're going to superpower all their mainstream apps with AI in the coming months. So they're going all in on AI, just as we predicted. What does that mean for business in general? Because everyone in our ecosystem, you know, in our network, uses Google in some capacity. Right. Does this going to meet, make the average human more productive much faster than ChatGPT? And does that mean that they're going to be more dominant than Bing and ChatGPT potentially? I feel like, well, that's, that's one piece of the puzzle where like your average, like, you know, um, Google Docs or this or that is going to be, you're going to be able to do more, more things with it that have kind of AI built in. But I think the, the bigger effect on like humanity is going to be like deep fakes. Like, right. the, like the videos, right? Like where you have, you know, a deep fake of, of, of Biden, right? <laughs> of saying whatever. Like you're going to be scrolling through social media and you're going to have no idea what's real and what isn't. <laughs> yeah. So what are your thoughts? No, I, I think that deep fake thing is definitely one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Like uh, I've seen like these voices like on my like TikTok. Like you see like you, it sounds exactly like some of these like most famous people like uh, Drake, uh, Biden, like Trump, all these things. And with the deep fake like pictures, I... 
in like five-ish years, I don't know what's going to be real because that's the technology right now. Yeah. With AI, like all the technology is exponential. Like one year is like five years or ten years back in the day. Yeah. So I, I just don't know. Like five years from now, I don't know. They're probably signing misinformation <laughs> on your uh, on your profile and banning those videos. Yeah, well, that's, well now they're going to ban the real ones and then the fake ones that are saying the proper message. They'll know, like, redo it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I actually deleted my Insta this week just to see how it goes. So it's going pretty well, actually. I, I wasn't watching as many reels. So uh, that, that feels great. Not wasting as much time on that, mm-hmm. like scrolling for an hour. You know? Now you got to de- delete uh, TikTok, too. No? Uh, <laughs> I, I never had TikTok in the first place. So, oh, but, uh, but I have a lot of people having it. Like, what do you guys have thoughts about social media? I guess... A couple of years back, there's a lot of debate about social media. Mm-hmm. Ever since Facebook changed the name to Meta, I think people talk don't talk about it as much. But like, what are your guys' thoughts about it? Just so on where talk on the topic. I think overall, social media has been like one of the things that became too good. Like you know, when like so, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. I think that's the point where like social media is really hit yeah. now. Like uh, yeah. like so much of like you know, you see like each social media has its own like little toxicness in it. And like Twitter, like the toxins, like the fighting between like, you know, like random like people. Like yeah. in Instagram, the toxins, like people posting like the best version of themselves and other people see only that. Like, and, and there are comments that are just too good to be true Exactly. Other friends. Yeah, exactly. So like you're just seeing like, a, and then like the thing is, it's fine. Like uh, I feel like maybe like I've kind of grown out of that because like, you know, like I didn't live my whole life with that. Like we didn't like live our whole life. Right. right? So, like you see the like, kids now that are like, you know, like 10 years old, like that, that's their start, right? Like, I mean, like that's their entire like form of communication, stuff like that. I don't know what like their lives are gonna look like 10, 15 years down the line. Like I mean, imagine having Instagram since you were like six years old. Well, I feel like it's programming the mind to a certain extent. Yeah, like, exactly. Everyone's looking for the next fix. Everyone's addicted to whatever the next piece of information is. And so someone being able to sit down and read a book is becoming more and more impossible. In mm-hmm. fact, you're just gonna summarize it with ChatGPT. And so <laughs> and yeah. so and so I feel like I feel like we're like as a society, we're moving towards a direction that's not really great for like deep thinking and not really great for being able to focus. But at the same time, we're also having the easiest access to information. So, you know, things like Twitter, you're able to, you know, information is able to be distributed to the masses. And even though it's censored, sometimes a lot of the right information comes out and we start to find out what are the things that were incorrect about, you know, media before. And so, you know, humanity has to kind of adjust to all these different pieces that are coming out. But, you know, I, I think it's important for everyone. You need to go outside and Feel some grass and you know, <laughs> walk grass. in the woods every once in a while and, yeah. and concentrate. So I agree. I feel like there's a lot of consumption in today's social media, but mm-hmm. there's not like really memorization, right? Like social media has been helpful. Like many of the topics that we discuss are from Twitter. Mm-hmm. We read the news and we're informed about what's happening around the world. But I feel like in the other types of content, you just consume it. You're not really processing it or remembering it. But when I was reading, by the way, just like full access, I don't read as much anymore. I used to be reading like paper books all day. Yes, now I'm doing audiobooks. Mm-hmm. And I feel like audiobooks is just like when I'm working out, I just like, okay, I, I want to listen to audiobooks. I'm addicted to audiobooks. And I think that's another version to learn. It just feels like I'm already past the time where I'm not going to really buy a paper book anymore, mm-hmm. as crazy as that is. So I feel like for our society, consumption and not really processing and learning about those information, like Reels, TikTok, yeah. you're not really learning anything from those short form videos and that's what I'm scared most about young people these days. Yeah, well and it's interesting too because you have you have very like polar opposites, right? Where you have kind of these short form contents that have been created that people are consuming. Mm-hmm. But then you've also seen a large like increase in the interest around things like podcasts. Yeah. Right, that are you know you're sitting down and you're listening to it for a whole hour or, th- or like the Joe Rogan podcast for three yeah. hours, right? <laughs> and people love it. And so there's hope, I think, <laughs> right? Right. There's there's hope that people are able to focus on a subject for a long period of time, and that people are really looking, just looking for something genuine to be able to listen to. Because there's yeah. there's so much so much crap that you see every day, and you know you might post something about you on Twitter, and you read all the comments, and for people that have a, you know a lot of followers, that becomes really toxic in their life. But to be able to have like some things that are that are really genuine, I think, are so so important. Yeah. yeah, and I think like a big reason for like why like podcasts or like you said like now you listen to audio is the form factor of just only like um, you know like audio. It makes it so much easier that you can be productive. You can like you know like wash your dishes and like listen to something like mm-hmm. educational, right? Like same way you listen to music with like you know headphones on, like completely wireless. It becomes so much easier that you can actually consume that content like the same way you would if you were to read that book in like slow content. I, so I don't think like there's like that lost in terms of like curiosity to learn but one thing that does scare me is like 
once like AI comes into the picture, like imagine like an AI podcast, stuff like that. Like the thing <laughs> is, it, it's funny, but like there's enough technology right now that like AI that creates content, AI that like makes a voice, all that stuff. It's kind of scary, right? But the part that kind of scares me from that is the fact that like these AIs are owned by kind of like corporations. And we saw how like Twitter kind of like had the whole Twitter file and stuff like that. If like you're getting all your information from AI from like these like specific sources only, you don't know if you're getting the true information or if you're getting like a filtered version of the information, right? And like yeah. that's I think one thing I really hope kind of changes with like some like Web three or something like that. Well, I hope that something like well what we were chatting about last time, like Nostra, which is a decentralized or distributed yeah. alternative to Twitter, can really make it such that the real content is able to be distributed, right? So because the person who's creating the post is signing it with their own private key. And so you can verify, you know, where that source of that post is coming from versus something like Twitter. Well, you don't really know. It's is Twitter kind of modifying it in the background. Same with Facebook. Yeah. Have they put it, you know, what if in the future there's a filter that they put the video through and then suddenly every, every video, like it's in the same way that they censor, you know, certain words, they might censor things in, in videos and modify the video as it's being uploaded in order to change the wording of what you're talking about. Imagine they're having a conversation about co- like COVID back in the day and they changed the words that you said um, to be pro-vaccine or, you know, like, they like or, or, or like, or anti-lab leak theory, which ended up being true, right? And so... Right. Yeah, I think that's the scary part. But I think the positive side is that we've been talking about like the Facebook, Google domination, the mm-hmm. monopoly for so many years. And we're like, oh, there's nothing really going to break them. There's, there's this theory for 20 plus years that Google is not going to be away. Google is not going to be breakable. There's no one going to be replacing search. I've heard that from my friends all the time. But now we're seeing AI coming up and this might disrupt everything that we've ever seen. Well, well I feel like AI is essentially is going to change humanity the same way that the printing press did. Right, like it's going to be such a mass, like the year twenty twenty two. Like when did ChatGPT come out? Twenty twenty two. Yeah. No, it was this year. Right? Oh, I, I think they had a version like last year. But okay. like any anyhow, like twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three, the equivalent of the modern printing press just hit, and then we're going to look, we're going to look back at a hundred years and look back at like this day and be like, yeah. that's when it all changed, man. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're just in very such an interesting period of our time. We have an economic drawdown. Mm-hmm. We have this like potential recession, and everything's going to bust. And we have this new breakthrough AI that might just change everything. There might be the one that determines winners and losers. Mm-hmm. So it's been really exciting here. Yeah. But I feel like usually the best quality companies usually do come during like economic downturns because the founders doing economic downturns. Like the only founders that can survive are ones that are like in like stringent, like they actually worry about every part of the company, not just about growth, 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 right? Like yeah. they worry about like your cash flow, you know, like a profitability, that kind of stuff. Like Apple was doing a bad time, Google was doing a bad time too, right? Uber as well, like yeah. during the 08 recession. Like. So I think like, yeah, AI coming out right now, it's definitely like still like uh, something that can definitely like scale like very fast and very rapidly too. Yeah. yeah, it just means people are going to have to not trust and verify even yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, any potential implications of AI in, like, Bitcoin? Mm, let me think. I mean, nothing, like, immediate, like, if the actual protocol. Like, like okay, maybe it helps your average developer to be able to kind of write code. But And you might think, oh, my goodness, right? You have developers that are writing code and it's being helped by AI. But by the end of the day, you have reviews by people at the end of the day that review every single thing. And so I think the biggest thing is just going to be for like writing content, right? So writing content that helps, talks about this, or like it's going to be used as a tool. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, a, a dystopian version of that could be if you have, you know, the same thing that I talked about with like deep fakes, right? So if you have like folks you know, kind of shitting on Bitcoin or, or, or changing like videos that are being uploaded by various folks mm-hmm. to be kind of anti-Bitcoin as we move into the next phase and the United States gets more and more worried about kind of um, their place in the world, you know, what is that going to look like? So I don't think it changes the protocol itself. I think we just see, you know, it's used as a tool or maybe used by governments that are anti-Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think we've had an interesting conversation today. I think the big note from this podcast, from this episode, just like, the rise of AI and the decline of traditional banking. So it's been really interesting to discuss that. I feel like the news cycle from this week to next week will be really fast and a lot of things going to happen. So I can't yeah. wait to see uh, what's going to go on. Well, there's weeks where nothing happens and there's weeks where decades happen. So I'll see you guys next decade. You know? Yeah, I'll see you guys next decade. Yeah, yeah. thanks guys. Perfect.